We'll open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 will be just in verses 16 and 17 today. And if you're thinking, wow, two verses, that means short sermon. Nah, not really. Maybe. Have you ever heard the phrase, you can't do that in church? You can't do that in church. You know, it's, I, I, to me, I always picture my mom. It, it just, it's a mom thing, I think. What, what are you doing? You can't do that in church. You can't run in the church. You can't, sw- I don't know if I ever swore in the church, but you know, somebody will swear and somebody will nudge him in the elbow or, or in the ribs with their elbow. You, you can't swear in church. This is church. It's God's house. He's here. You can't, you can't swear in church. Somebody will say a lie. And it's like any other place. Maybe it was okay, but they'll say, well, you can't do that in church. This is church. This is where God is. You can't lie in church. Or maybe it's an off-color joke. And, and it's funny as a pastor, you know, sometimes I get to be privy to these moments and, and somebody will say, the, the pastor's here and we're in church. You can't, you can't tell that joke. What are you thinking? You know, some people complain that we've lost this idea of the church being a, a sacred place, that, that somehow we've lowered our standards. And I agree with that. I really do. I think we've lost the seriousness of the presence of God in the church. We treat it as something common. We treat it as if our actions and our attitudes shouldn't change even though God's presence is here. My problem actually with that is not so much the emphasis on the change of attitude and actions because of God's presence. My problem with the you can't do that in church is our understanding of church. Because this building, these walls, these windows, this leaky roof is not the church. There is nowhere in the New Testament where the building where we meet in with worship is considered the church. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are the church. So if we have this standard of the church being God's place of His dwelling, His presence, and we think that should change our attitude and actions, you shouldn't do that in church, Shouldn't we apply that to every single moment of our lives as Christians? Now, some of you will say, wait a minute, you said don't run in church. That's really just because it's a bad idea to run in a crowded place. Let's be honest, okay? There's nothing necessarily sinful about it. It's just a poor choice. You're going to hurt somebody. I tell my kids all the time, you're going to knock somebody over. Don't do it. We need to take seriously that the church is the people and not a building. And then we need to take that standard of holiness and apply it to us. And that's what these two verses are about. Let's read them together. Well, I'll read them for you. You can follow along. 1 Corinthians verses six, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. I hope you can see right away why we're dealing with two verses. These are so loaded with meaning and so crucial to get right if we're going to understand the rest of 1 Corinthians. Because I actually believe in these two verses, these two verses contain the thought upon which Paul is hanging all of 1 Corinthians. As If you remember, the context of the book is this church is really messed up. 
They have just chaos in their worship services. They have chaos in their theology. They have chaos in the way they're treating one another. They have chaos in the way they're following worldly leaders. They are following the ways of the world and they've just imported it, brought it into their worship and their identity as people of God. And Paul is challenging them lovingly, gently, but also quite strongly in some cases about areas in which they need to change. And I believe he's tying it all into this point. You need to be different because God is with you. And that makes all the difference in the world. So there are things that are out of place in our corporate life as the church because God is with us. And there are things that are out of place in our individual lives as Christians because God is with us individually as well. So let's walk through this and let's pick this apart. Because really what Paul is talking about if I'm going to tie it into the idea of saturated, is again, they were so saturated with the ways of this world. He's saying that's not who you are. You are saturated with the presence of God. So that's where we want our focus to be as Christians. Every day waking up saying, God's presence is here with me, here and now. Every moment. How does that change how I live? How will that change my attitude and actions? So let's start with the joy of knowing that God is with us. Because this is good news. There's a huge warning. We're going to get there. But let's start with the good news. Now it starts, though, even the good news, with a rebuke. Don't you know. That phrase right there in the Greek and the way it's written, and it comes up several other times in 1 Corinthians, the, the way it's written is, it's, it's a rebuke. It's you should know. It's Paul telling them, Are you kidding? Don't you understand this already? This is something you should grasp by now. And really implied in that is that the way they were treating each other, the way they were functioning as a church, showed that they didn't know it. They didn't get it because they weren't living it out in their lives. I almost wonder if part of what Paul is saying here is, don't you know? And he's saying, I know you know because I taught it to you. If you remember, Paul spent about a year in Corinth ministering to these people, teaching them, discipling them, raising up leaders. And now he's left and the church is really veering off course. And he's saying, wait a minute, don't you know this? And I think we need to hear that rebuke. It seems sometimes that Christians today almost feel that it's spiritual to hide behind a sense of ignorance. Is that just me? Oh, no, no, I just, I just want to love people. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, don't, don't you know these things? No, no, I don't, those are for, you know, the pastors and the theologians. I just, just want to love God and be loved by God. And, and I think Paul would say, well, yes, but you need to know what that means. You need to know the God you say you love. You need to know the way that He loves you. That need to define, that needs to define our love for one another. So we need to hear that rebuke. We need to go deeper. And I, you know, this morning, Claudia, I was talking to Claudia. We were talking about youth group and you had, what, 30 or so? 30 kids, youth, not kids, youth, sorry, they're 30 young adults, and uh, in youth group on Friday night, and she was just telling me about the Bible lesson, and what they were reading, and studying, and how the youth were responding, and man, God's at work, and I walk around the church, and I see all the different Bible studies that are going on in Sunday morning, and people are growing in their understanding, and their knowledge, and I'm not talking about a head knowledge, I'm not talking about something you would put down on a Scantron test, I don't, do they use Scantron anymore? Yeah, good, okay. Dating myself. 
uh, I'm not talking about just head knowledge. I mean knowledge like you know a friend, like you know your husband or your wife. That close personal relationship that says, I want to continue to know more. We need to know God. We need to know Christ and these truths about us. And so he says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? In 587 BC, the temple in Jerusalem that was built by Solomon, the son of David, was destroyed. A conquering army came in and just leveled it. I don't think we can fully appreciate what this meant to the Israelites. The devastation that it meant for that temple to be destroyed. This was for them the very dwelling place of God in their midst. It was what made them who they are. It was their identity as the people of God and the nation of Israel. And to have a foreign army come in and just level it and destroy it was devastating to them as the people of God. And for hundreds of years, they lived in exile and then back in the land and they struggled and they suffered and they couldn't rebuild the temple. And even once they were able to start, it was kind of pathetic. It was nothing compared to its former glory. And they longed for and looked forward to this time that God would rebuild his dwelling place among them. Now, by the time of Jesus, there is a temple. King Herod had come along and built upon what had already been there and and enlarged it and made it this impressive, maybe even more impressive than Solomon's, I'm not sure, but a really impressive structure. He had rebuilt the temple. Now imagine seeing white marble columns, gold inlay, just a beautiful, grand structure. Now tap into that and understand what Paul is saying to this ragtag group of Christians in Corinth. He said that building in Jerusalem, that's not it. That's not God's dwelling place. That's not where he wants to be with his people. You are God's dwelling place. I don't think we can imagine the enormity of what this meant to them that God would want to dwell with them, that they are this culmination and fulfillment of God's plan to dwell among his people. You know, in chapter nine verses, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter six, verses nine and 10, I'm not going to read it, frankly, because the kids are with us. And, And he lists some sins that were true about the Corinthians. And they are sins that would make us blush. They're horrible things. But then in verse 11, he says this, that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know, when they built a temple, they had a lot of work to do to get it ready for God's holy presence to come in and dwell among them. It didn't just have to be built well. It had to be spiritually cleansed from the sins of the people to be a perfect holy dwelling place for God. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians and what God tells us is that is exactly what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. You have been washed. You have been purified. Your sins have been wiped away. You are a place fit for the very presence of God. Man, if that doesn't blow us away, there's something wrong. Because that is absolutely amazing to think that that's the kind of relationship our God wants with us. But you know, God's plan has always been to be with his people. 
If you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, scholars have looked at it and said the way the garden is structured, the way that that account is even told, it's very similar to other accounts of temples being built. And what they've said is this was the building of a place by God, the earth, for him to dwell with his people. Now you might say, wait a minute, I don't see that. Hold on to it. In the Old Testament, he gathers his people, he saves them out of Egypt, and then what's one of the first things he does for them? He says, build a tabernacle, a place where I will dwell in your midst. And you know, all of the Old Testament law, we, we like to say, oh, that's old, it's, it's legalistic, but the Old Testament law was the expression of God telling them, this is who you are to be and how you are to live because I'm with you. Now, they often put that backwards. If we do this, then God will be with us and bless us. But God said, no, 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 I am already with you and I am already blessing you and this is what that should look like in your life. Obedience follows faith in God's presence. In the New Testament, Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. He's called Emmanuel, God with us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then Paul here calls the church us, Christians, God's dwelling place in this world. Flip back to Revelation chapter 21. And this is why I tend to believe what those scholars say about the Garden of Eden, because so much of that language is picked up here and actually was picked up in language we looked at last week uh, further back in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. But Revelation chapter one or 21, let me read for you verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God's plan is to be with us and God's presence always, always, always makes a difference in the people he dwells with. Always. And I believe the new heavens and the new earth are what they are in terms of their holiness, their splendor, their glory, their beauty, their comfort, because God is there. Because it's the place of his presence. God's plan has always been to be with us. Let's just take this individually for a second. If you're here today and whatever has gone on in your life, Whatever things that you've done, I want you to hear the hope and the joy of this message. God can take the worst, most awful sinner, save them through the power of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, wipe them clean, not just turn them into a better person, but turn us into a place fit for His holiness to dwell. Don't ever say God can't do something with you because that is the greatest thing He can do for anybody. He says, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. Imagine being downtown Rochester. And on the street corner, you you see a a woman standing there and a man approaches her. 
And he gets down on one knee and holds up his hands and he asks her to marry him. And she, he says, I want to be with you forever. I want you to be right there with me. I want to marry you. Will you accept my hand in marriage? And if you see that scene, you probably go, oh, well, that's so sweet. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody propose to somebody else, but it's kind of special. Let's change the scene a little bit, though, in your, your mind's eye. Imagine the man is a homeless man, and this woman doesn't know him at all. He's disheveled and gross. He sees her and just thinks she's attractive. Something within him just says, I'm just going to ask her to marry me. Maybe she'll say yes. Maybe she'll get me out of this poverty, make me rich. Maybe it'll all turn out. I don't really care. doesn't matter who she is. I'm just going to go up and ask her. Is that a sweet, precious moment? No. That woman's probably terrified. (laughs) Rightly so. But what if it's a well-dressed man? He's handsome. He's got his life together. Maybe you even know him. Maybe he's even wealthy. But you also know a few things about him. He has a history of going one woman after another after another. He has a history of chewing them up and spitting them out. Just using them for his own personal gain or pleasure or whatever it may be. And maybe she doesn't even know that. But you do. Is that a pretty picture? No. You want to run and scream and say, lady, get away. Just go. Just turn around and run. You have no idea what you're getting into. Let's change it one more time. Imagine the man is is a wonderful man. You know him. He's a good guy. And the woman is the one who's stinky and disheveled. She's been living on the streets for weeks. And he comes to her and he kneels down and he says, I want to marry you. Because you and I were dating years ago and you ran away from me and I've been chasing after you ever since. And I want to take you home and love you and clean you up and show you who you were meant to be. Is that a pretty picture? That's how God loves you. That's how God wants to be with us. And those other pictures, that's how the world loves you. That's the draw of sin. It looks so pretty on the outside of, oh, this will be great. It'll give me comfort. It'll give me success. It'll give me what I think I need. And it's really just wanting to chew you up and spit you out and move on to the next person. And that really sets up the importance of what we're about to see. Because God's presence coming into a temple is a big deal. Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. There is so much pressure today in the church. There's a lot of pressure on me as a pastor to say, you need to just love people. You need to welcome and accept everybody. This should just be a place of just wrapping our arms around everybody. It's verses like these that need to call those thoughts into question and say, are we putting our ideas on who we are or are we going to accept God's ideas? Because if we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we better look at this verse and say this means something. All right, this is hard, but let's walk through this together and say, God, teach us. He starts off by saying, if anyone destroys God's temple. 
Now, the word there for destroy can literally mean come in, take a wrecking ball. I mean, they didn't, well, I don't know, maybe they had wrecking balls. But it can mean to take, come in, and just make something crumble to the ground. But it can also mean something else. You see, in the Jewish mindset, to destroy the temple was to defile it. One of the most unclean animals to the Jewish people was a pig, right? You know this. So, one of the most horrific things in their mind that could ever happen was for a pig to be taken into the Holy of Holies, slaughtered there, and have its blood poured out. It would defile. Literally, in their mindset, it would destroy the temple. Would the temple still stand? Yes. Would it still look beautiful? Yes. Would it be able to be a dwelling place of God's presence? No. In that sense, its purpose was destroyed. Now, it's interesting that in the intertestamental period, that's exactly what happened to the temple. The invading, I believe it was the Greek army, Antiochus IV came in and he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies. And it is looked back, if you've heard of the phrase, the abomination that causes desolation, that was first applied to that moment. It was just the most horrific thing that could possibly happen. And it was only later when the temple was cleansed prayed over, purified through the blood of the sacrifice, that it was fit again to be God's dwelling place. So when we read this destroyed, I don't want us to necessarily think of a building being knocked down, but something being so undermined that it's no longer fit for the purpose for which it was created. Do you see where that is? Okay. So what destroys a church? Some of the things from the context that we've already seen, this idea of factionalism, this following after human leaders saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Chuck Swindoll, I'm from Billy Graham, whatever it is. Good people. All the people I believe that are listed in 1 Corinthians, in terms of people they were following, nothing bad is said about them. I think Paul knew these were wonderful, godly leaders. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the people were shaping their identity around who they were following. And Paul's saying, it's ripping you apart. It's destroying God's purpose of being his dwelling place because instead of being all about God, you're following these human leaders. Another thing that comes up later in the book is the idea of rebellious sin. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Bible clearly says, and we must clearly accept, Every single one of us is a sinner. We must understand that as our identity. No one is greater than anybody else. No one is better than anybody else. If sinners were not allowed to come to church, if we were not allowed to join together to worship God together, if we were not allowed to be the church and worship God and be saved by Him, nobody would be saved, right? So praise God that God accepts sinners because I'm here because of that. And so are you. What I'm talking about and what Paul challenges the church on later is what I call rebellious sin. It is somebody who knows something is wrong. God has clearly made it plain to them, this is wrong, it is against God's will, and the person is saying, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. That's different. Take the idea of an alcoholic somebody who is struggling with drinking and getting drunk, 
and they come and they pray and they want to get well and they want that sin removed from their life and they're praying with church leaders and they're saying, I'm struggling and the next week they get drunk again. They come back and they say, I want God to remove this from my life. I don't want this. I know he says it's wrong. I believe it's wrong. Please help me. And they struggle again. And the next week they do it again and again and again and again. I got to tell you, if the church ever loses the place for that person, something's wrong with us. That person knows what God wants, is seeking it, wants to be healed, wants what God wants for them, and is struggling and stumbling along the way. Because I look at a person like that, and I see myself, and I see many of you in so many different ways. God loves the struggling, stumbling sinner. What I'm talking about is somebody who says, I know God says it's wrong to get drunk. I'm getting drunk anyway, because it makes me feel good. So I'm going to do it. And you can't tell me that it's wrong. Because that person now is saying, I know God says this, but I say the opposite and I'm right. Do you see the difference? That is a huge difference. God has grace and compassion for those struggling with sin and stumbling with sin, and we should too. But God has very harsh words for somebody who says, I'm holding on to my sin and I don't care what anybody else says. That is a dangerous place to be. The other thing that this leads into is that following the ways of the world, being saturated with the ways of the world as the Corinthian church was, is something that destroys and undermines or defiles or corrupts the church. Now why? How does this destroy the church? Why is this language so strong here? People need God, not us. That truth was just blasted in my brain over and over this week. As I met with this family going through a time of grieving and mourning as their loved one lay in that bed dying, I showed up and I just said, God, they don't need me. What do I have for them? I'm just a young kid. I, I'm a kid. I'm going to be 40 this week. I didn't, ah, it's made about me. I didn't mean that. Um, but they don't need me. They don't, they don't need my words, my, my comfort, my wisdom. They don't need that. They need God. And so every time I went, I said, God, I'm going to show up. And you do what you do to show them you. And if I can be a tool in your hand to do that, praise God. If you need to get me out of the way, then praise God. They don't need us. They need God. And can I tell you in churches today and as Christians, and and sometimes we struggle with this too, we've made ourselves idols to say if people could see how great we are, it would change their life. No, it won't. They don't need us. They need God. So when we put our ways above God's ways, especially when we know God has already said that way is wrong, We are literally pointing people away from God. We're not just a minor distraction. We are destroying God's purpose for people to come to him for healing and salvation. This is a serious thing. And for the church to allow this to go on unchallenged is to give approval to that person's sin and to say they are right and God is wrong. And that's going to come up later in chapter 5 when Paul tells this church, in all the Christian love we can have, 
you need to tell that man to get out of your church. It was a man who was in sin and was undermining the work of God in that place. If we are going to be biblical Christians, we need to understand the seriousness of sin. We need to understand the comfort and the healing and the the forgiveness that needs to be applied to people and the way we can lead them and love them back to a relationship with Christ. But when somebody says, I know you're saying God says this, I disagree. We need to warn that person. We need to limit that person's effect and impact within the church. And if they are unwilling to repent, the most loving thing we can do for them and for God and for those gathered, quite frankly, is to show them to the door. I know that doesn't preach well. And frankly, there may be somebody that's sitting here today that doesn't come back next week because I just said that. It's in the Scripture. I don't know any other way around it. What does it mean that God will destroy that person? I believe Paul is continuing this metaphor. And so just as we understand the understanding of, it's repetitive, just as we understand what he's saying about the temple being destroyed, we need to also apply this to the person. So it can mean a literal, physical, knocking down destruction. This could be referring to some sort of eternal judgment upon this person. That's possible. But I'm not sure in the context that's the most immediate application of what he's saying. I believe he's tying into this idea of a temple being destroyed by being corrupted or defiled. So now what he's saying is, here's a person saying, my way is right, God's way is wrong. Their presence in their life is themselves, not God. Their priority is themselves, not God. Their standard of authority is themselves, not God. Their purpose is to live for self and not God. They're saying, I'm going to do what I want, regardless of what God says. God has a purpose for the church to be his dwelling place, and sin defiles that. Now switch that and watch what happens. When a sinner, somebody living in rebellion against God, is living in rebellion, they have a priority and a purpose for their own glory. And what God is saying is, I'm going to undermine you. I'm going to come in and chip away at your purpose for your life. I'm going to defile what you think is important in your life. I'm going to make it unsuitable for what you want to do. He is telling that person living in rebellion, I'm going to get to you. I'm going to chase after you, and I will do whatever it takes. Might that lead to eternal destruction if the person is unrepentant? Absolutely. But God's purpose all along the way, and we see this all throughout the Old Testament, is to chase after that person and turn them back to himself. But make no mistake, if you are living in rebellion, that process could hurt. And it is the most loving thing God can do to not allow you to simply run away without him chasing after you. This is an important thing that God would do in our lives. And in chapter 5, we'll get there in a couple weeks, we're going to see that Paul comes to this church and he says God has a purpose and a plan for you to be the dwelling place of His glory through you for people to look at you and your lives and say, I want to know this Christ you're talking about. And your sin is damaging that. It must be protected from the church. The rest of verse 17 God says, oh, I'm sorry, I never flipped this. There you go, warning of God with us. All right, 
The rest of verse 17 says God's temple is sacred and you yourselves are that temple. Everything that Paul is going to do in the rest of 1 Corinthians ties into this as he applies it to their individual situations. How they should live as husband and wife. How they should worship. How they should deal with someone caught in sin. How they should deal with food sacrifice to idols. It's all from this understanding of who they are as people saved by Christ and being his God's dwelling place. Look, this is the mission of the church. This is why we exist. It's not just to reach out in some act of service to the world. It is to be the place for God to dwell. And sometimes when we put our service above the understanding of God's dwelling place, we get it profoundly wrong. We must start with what God wants to do in us before we start looking at what God wants to do through us. Who we are is important. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Take a right, a couple books in your Bible. Listen to this prayer of Paul. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Listen to the words that Paul applies to the church and what he's praying for them, that they might truly know Christ. Chapter 3, uh, Ephesians, cha- did I say 1 Corinthians? Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, and from whom, or from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul is praying for this church that they would be filled with God's presence. And he's saying this is no easy thing. This is nothing that we can take lighthearted. This is difficult to allow God to come in and shine His spotlight into the dark areas of our lives and for God to say, I love you even though that's true about you, but I love you too much to leave you this way. I've got something better for you. Let me cut this out of your life because it's damaging you. It's hurting you. Our mission is not just to comfort people, but there is comfort. Our mission is not just to accept people, though there is acceptance. If we put what we think we should do, giving comfort or acceptance or being welcoming before who we are as people redeemed by Christ, made holy by Him, and in whom God's holy presence dwells, we will be something less than God has created us to be. Our membership covenant takes this serious. As a part of our membership covenant, which is membership for us, is allowing somebody to come in and have authority over the church. They have a vote on everything we do in terms of high-level leadership, budgeting, appointing, removing of leaders, everything. So we take that serious. And part of the membership covenant says this, that we are committing to live a holy life that displays the glory of God through the power of the gospel as we forsake sinful attitudes and actions and submit to God's authority and the work of the Holy Spirit in every area of our lives. And when I led the membership class last week, I told them, I said, look, if you have an area of your life that you know God says one thing and you are living opposite, please come and tell us. 
please talk to us. We want to help you with that. We want to walk through that with you to lead you to repentance. But you cannot join the church until you repent of that thing and allow God to heal it in your life. Room for sinners. Room for struggling. But we must be very careful with someone who says, my way is better than God's way. Because when we do that, we're putting our comfort. Look, this is really what it comes down to. And and I've talked with numerous people. They say, I know God says this is wrong, but it's going to cost me financially. It's going to destroy my life. It's going to be hard. I'm going to be sad. Whatever it is. And my heart breaks. Those things are true. But what we're saying is that that hardship in our life and our comfort is somehow more important than the holy presence of God at work in and through us. Do you see how dangerous that is? We need to trust that if God says He wants to change us, He knows what He is doing. We struggle with this because we see sin like the choice between broccoli and bacon. Right? One we know is good for us. One we know tastes good. (laughs) The bacon. And we say, really, a little bit of bacon? <laughs> what? Come on, pastor, what's the big deal? Okay. <laughs> Depending on how much bacon. But man, you'll die happy with that bacon. But <laughs> the way the Bible describes it is not the choice between broccoli and bacon. It is the choice between broccoli and poison. A poison that goes down smooth and makes you feel great for minutes and then kills you. Who of you who had a child who saw that child drinking poison would stand there for a moment? I imagine my two-year-old. Would I stand there and say, you know, if I grab that bottle and take it away from her before she drinks it, man, she's going to be so mad. She's going to cry and whine and scream. She's going to hate me for minutes and... I just, she's happy right now. She's content. I mean, really, if it makes her happy, shouldn't I just let her have it? Would you do that as a parent? Take it a step farther. Would that be loving? The loving thing to do in that moment would be to say, she misunderstands something that I understand. I need to step in and save my child. I will take that away from her. And yet somehow we've accepted this very, very worldly notion that it is somehow unloving to confront someone lovingly in their sin. We say, well, wait a minute, if that's what they want to do, shouldn't they just be allowed to do it? And the answer from Scripture, quite frankly, is no. Because God has something better for them. And He has something better for the church. And to allow that to go on, to not offer the healing and the repentance and the grace and the mercy that's there, is to allow them to just drink that poison and hurt themselves. And I know, just like that two-year-old, they might scream and cry and get mad and say, I hate you and I never want to deal with you. And frankly, I've had those conversations. And it's hard. But I look at God's Word and I say, this is what God's Word says. I cannot be less than loving in the way that God has called us to be loving. God has sought us so that he can be with us. This world and your sin is a poor suitor. God is chasing after each one of us. 
And he's saying, I want to be with you, and I want you to be with me. And his presence in our life makes all the difference in the world. Listen, if you're here today and you're struggling with a sin in your life, if there's something and you're hearing this and you're going, oh man, this hurts. I've been holding on to something and I want to let it go. Please talk to me. Please call me up. Let's get together or get together with one of the deacons. Find a Christian brother or sister in Christ that you can get together with and just confess and say, help me. But don't just hold on to it and say it's no big deal. Don't just hold on to it and say, I know God says it's wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. Because God has something better for you. And I would hate for the truth of 1 Corinthians 3.17 to be played out in your life. It doesn't have to be that way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you take seriously the fact that you want to dwell with us and there is great joy in that. What an honor, what a privilege that we who are wicked, wretched sinners could be called your dwelling place. And you are the one who's done everything necessary and possible to make us fit. You don't call us to be perfect so that you can dwell with us. You come and you say, you can't do it, but I can. And I have. Just accept my Son as your Savior. But then, God, you have a purpose in us together as the church. And sin undermines, defiles, corrupts, and destroys that purpose. So may we be loving towards sinners. May we be gracious towards sinners. May we offer the hope of Jesus Christ towards sinners. But may we never downplay the danger of the sin. And God, if there's someone here who is rebelling against you right now, who says, I know you say this is wrong, but I say it's right, I pray, Father, you would chip away at their hard heart out of love. Do whatever it takes out of love to point them back to you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen.